Welcome to the Pastor's Bible Study Podcast. I am Reverend Trudy Robinson, the lead pastor of the First United Methodist Church of San Diego. I'm glad you're joining me today. This third episode of The Church and Racism looks at the historical period immediately after the Civil War through to the early 20th century. We look at the interpretation of the biblical story of Noah and his son Ham that undergirded a belief in divine blessing and curses on race and the divine sanction of slavery. We look at the theology of the Ku Klux Klan in its first and second iterations, and we see the fine line that ideologically distinguishes between Christian white supremacists and Christian anti-racists. I'm glad you're here. We are talking about um, the time after the Civil War up until the early t- earliest 20th, 20th century, earliest, is that a word? Early 20th century. And we're looking at that time frame, of course, with the lens of race, with a particular in- uh, attention to the church. And we're going to touch upon some broad uh, theology and some specific uh, scripture as well. So let's get started. The Civil War, as you might recall, um, I know I need to be reminded all the time, was uh, between April 12, 1861 to May 9, 1865, and it is known as the deadliest war the United States has ever waged. The current estimates indicate that there were between 650,000 and 850,000 people who died during the Civil War. Now, there were five things that contributed to the breakdown of national political unity. And uh, I'll list them out, and then I'll tell you a little bit specifically about what those were. The first was the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. The second, the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854. The third, the Dred Scott Decisions of 1850. 57, and then the fourth, John Brown and his particular raid on Federal Armory in 1859, and the fifth thing, the election of Abraham Lincoln in 1860. Now, the Constitution said that enslaved people who escaped to free territories remained slaves, but it was contested in the North in the northern states, and it was poorly enforced as a result of that uh, tension in the north. And so the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 made it easier for people to retrieve their runaway slaves. That was the first thing that kind of broke down that national unity. The Kansas-Nebraska Act allowed for new territories to decide for themselves whether or not they would allow slavery in their territories. Now, what happened after that act was that people began to flood those new territories so that they could influence how the states reacted to slavery. And then the Dred Scott decision um, is focused around Dred Scott, a, a man who was enslaved and sought to buy his freedom, but the family that owned him refused to let him do so. He sued, and the case went all the way to the Supreme Court. 
and the Dred Scott decision from the Supreme Court, according to the majority opinion, stated that black people were of an inferior order and unfit to associate with the white race. That decision effectively eliminated access to the court system by black people. John Brown, he was a rebel. In fact, there's a wonderful series on one of the streaming platforms, I can't quite remember, uh, about his life. Uh, it's really, um, it's an interesting uh, series. I would invite you to, to look it up. Um, not always easy to watch, but John Brown, he opposed slavery and he was actively freeing slaves and he did so often violently. He was not afraid to put an end to slavery through violent means. And he and his men raided the Federal Armory in Virginia and that was his last big effort. He, he captured the armory, uh, but eventually he himself himself was captured and hung. That was an event that helped kind of highlight the tension in uh, the, the political unity of the nation. And then Abraham Lincoln uh, was elected, and that pushed some Southern states to speak of secession. So those were the things that were behind the Civil War. When, um, when Abraham Lincoln addressed the nation after Robert E. Lee surrendered at Appomattox, Virginia. Lincoln said, both Union and Confederacy read the same Bible and pray to the same God, and each invoked God's aid against the other. He goes on to say, the prayers of both could not be answered, and that of neither has been answered fully. Indeed, the Baptists split over slavery, the Presbyterians split over slavery, and the Methodists split over slavery. John Wesley, uh, the founder of Methodism, thought that slavery was appalling, and he said, it cannot be either war or contract. Can, I'm sorry, let me, let me start that again. I don't want to misquote John Wesley. John Wesley said, it cannot be that either war or contract can give any man such a property in another as he has in sheep and oxen. Much less is it possible that any child of man should ever be born a slave. That was John Wesley's stance, but as Methodism grew, especially in the South, it grew more socially conservative and the views began to shift. In the 1808 General Conference of the Methodist Episcopal Church, that was the name of our church at that time, the General Conference of 1808 determined that each regional conference could decide for themselves whether local Methodists could buy and sell people who were black into slavery. The slave-owning bishop, James Andrew, in 1844, became the focus of that year's general conference. And anti-slavery advocates sought to censure that bishop for owning slaves for as long as he owned slaves. But James Andrew did not abide by that. He did not want to give up his slaves, and he gathered allies around himself. And at that general conference, the Methodist Episcopal Church 
South was created. Andrew and his allies split off from the Methodist Episcopal Church. As we talked about last week, the Bible as a whole, I'm sorry, two weeks ago, the Bible as a whole seems to treat slavery as something that just is. It just seems to accept slavery, and it doesn't specifically speak uh, in condemnation of slavery. Uh, that's at least what could be said on the surface, and we'll say more about that later. There is one story that plays a, a big role in uh, slavery and racism in our nation's history and especially uh, in our religious understanding, and that is the story of Ham. <sighs> this is found in Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 to 29, and this is where we're going to dive deep this morning. Genesis 9, verse 18, begins this story. You know about, you know about Noah. He was uh, the one that was saved with his family on the ark. The rest of humankind was demolished with the flood. God promised to never do that again with the rainbow, and Noah and his family began to rebuild the, the community um, after the flood. And so um, this comes after that time. And Scripture reads like this. The sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. Ham was the father of Canaan, and these three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was peopled. Noah, a man of the soil, was the first to plant a vineyard. He drank some of the wine and became drunk, and he lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Betheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, lowest of slaves shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed by the Lord my God be Shem, and let Canaan be his slave. May God make space for Jepheth, and let him live in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his slave. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years, and all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So, I imagine it's a strange story, isn't it? It's a very strange story, but you can hear the verses that people latched onto in terms of justifying slavery. Now, pro-slavery Christians concluded in this story, in their interpretation of it, that the black people are descendants of Ham, and therefore they belonged in a state of slavery. Um, sorry, I'm gonna mute a little bit, okay. Um, the word ham is believed to come from a Hebrew word that means black, hot, and burnt. 
But there's some question about that. Scholar George Fredrickson says that that's really a misreading of the Hebrew word, and that's not an accurate understanding. But that was the understanding that pro-slavery Christians brought to the text, is that ham meant black. And ham's, ham, um, in the genealogy that follows this story, Ham has four sons, Cush, Mizraim, Put, and lastly, Canaan. And there's a, a connection with each of these names to a geographic location. Cush uh, refers to the, the descendants that lived in Ethiopia. Mizraim refers to Egypt, Put, Libya, and lastly, Canaan is Canaan, the area in um, Syria. So these designations come from another scriptural reference, such as the one found in Psalm chapter 105, verse 23. It reads, Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob lived as an alien in the land of Ham. So you see that connection. That's what, uh, where this interpretation comes from. So if Ham, who is uh, thought to be black and uh, did something horrible in this story and therefore would be cursed and become the slaves, then it is the black people uh, in these areas uh, that pro-slavery Christians understood this story to say, uh, areas of Ethiopia, Egypt, Libya. But the curse in this story is specifically for Canaan, not Ethiopia, Ethiopia or Egypt or Libya. Canaan is the one that is specifically cursed. And Canaan is not really part of Africa. And so that's a little bit of a stretch with this interpretation um, that others would argue around one stretch. There's a lot of arguments here. <laughs> Let me also just say in this caveat that... that um, I'm really trying to paint for us an understanding of where people were coming from that supported racism and slavery. And uh, I, I'm assuming that all of us kind of know the arguments for why that's not a good position for us as Christians to take. So I'm not going there in much of my conversation today. But I think there's a reason for Canaan to be uh, cursed in this. Remember, Canaan is um, the land uh, that is, it's the promised land. That is the land that the Hebrew people were promised as they go in uh, out of Egypt through the wilderness into the promised land under Moses's leadership and Joshua's leadership. And, and so there's a, there's a, um, a narrative excuse for the tension between Hebrew uh, people and Canaanites. Um, it's throughout the scriptures. Uh, Canaan was the promised land, but it was inhabited. And so there was that tension. And so that, that um, I think, it puts that curse on Canaan in a historical uh, narrative of the scripture. But the author um, or scholar George Fredrickson notes that this curse has always been a flexible curse. He says, Jews, peasants, Tartars have been considered cursed over the years. Um, we know the, the difficulty of biblical interpretation. It changes in its context. The story itself is about honor. Um, it's about Noah's honor. And um, there's, 
there's some scholarship that suggests that as as um, the growing uh, culture was arising after the flood, Noah became the first priest, and the wine that he created was part of the priestly duties. And Ham's reaction to Noah was a disrespectful one, uh, seeing his nakedness, um, and and that was a disrespect for the priestly function as well. And there's that uh, possible interpretation. There's also um, an understanding that uh, um, seeing one's nakedness was a euphemism for actually having sex with that person. We see that in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 17. If a man takes his sister, a daughter of his father or a daughter of his mother, and sees her nakedness, and she sees his nakedness, it is a disgrace. So nakedness could have that understanding. We can't be sure, right? There's a lot of context that comes to play that we don't quite understand for our understanding of this text. But at the very least, surface level of the story, Ham acted dishonorably and rebelliously towards his father, whereas his brothers respected his father, right? Ham was the one that dishonored him. Now that, those characteristics of um, rebelliousness and acting uh, not very nobly are characteristics that fit the white Southern prejudices towards black people. That's how they understand. So there was a ready-made um, connection in the Southern Christian's mind of this black people being just like Ham and therefore needing to be controlled. Those were all of the things that went into this story that justified um, the, the slavery and the, the race orientation uh, found biblical roots and seemed to sanction it with divine providence. That's not the only theology that came to play in this time period after the Civil War. Uh, Robert Louis Dabney was a Southern Presbyterian Methodist who promoted the theology that the white race was the nobler race. Uh, and he espoused a, a racial genealogy that underlies this interpretation. Uh, this Genesis story is a part of that. We, we heard bits of it already. But he goes on to say that Shem's descendants became the Jewish race, and the descendants of Jepheth became the white people. And these two groups became the rightful masters of all the descendants of Ham, who, of course, were the black people cursed to slavery. Now, this, this argument really took on because it appealed to people's need for a plain reading of Scripture, for, for something to be very uh, clear, uh, the letter of the law rather than the spirit of the law, right? Uh, and, and this, whereas um, anti-slavery Christians could talk about something more vague as uh, loving your neighbor, this was much more clear and much more literal. Uh, and we'll say more about that as well. 
But the appeal of this kind of theology really seemed to be just a straightforward interpretation that honored scriptural authority. Now, there was another stance uh, that Christians could use in this time frame as well. It, it came from James Henley Thornwell, and he asserted that the church can say and share and proclaim what the Bible teaches, but must remain silent on that which the Bible is silent. So remember, we, we know that the Bible doesn't really condemn slavery. It doesn't challenge it. It just kind of assumes it's there in specific uh, literal means. Um, and so it's in this case, it's silent on whether or not slavery is good or bad. And so Thornwell says that Christians could choose then to practice or abstain from slavery according to their, their conscience. But he also says that Christians can't and shouldn't attempt to influence government on slavery or any other political matter. Christians could only regulate slavery and ensure that the slave owners and those who are enslaved followed the commandments of the Bible. We hear that in our present day, don't we? The, the, the plea for churches not to get into politics, right? Um, but that was a stance. Be silent on what the Bible isn't clear about. We can also imagine and remember there are lots of different cases where uh, Christians have, uh, have tried to influence policies uh, like uh, the posting of the Ten Commandments in schools and, and some things like that, right? So it's, it's uh, not a hard and fast rule as we've seen historically, but that was one of the places where Christians could stand in this time frame. After the Civil War, there was a, another theology that came about. It was uh, known as the myth of the lost cause, uh, and it developed an understanding that kind of explained the South's defeat in the Civil War. The lost cause myth said that the pre-Civil War South was virtuous and patriotic and that the South really wanted nothing more than to be left alone to preserve its idyllic civilization. But the aggressive and godless North attacked and disrupted their society. They, the North invited the federal troops, the federal government into their small town rural life. And that idyllic life was forever changed because of that meddling. The South framed this story in terms of biblical history, the biblical history of Israel, and therefore claimed it was part of God's providence. Now the story is, um, and, and it's kind of hard to pinpoint one particular scripture because it's kind of a, a theme throughout scripture, but it's the idea that um, Israel was conquered by Babylon and sent into exile, right? And the prophets began to understand that exile, that conquest, of Babylon over Israel to be God's punishment for Israel's abandonment of the covenant. And that punishment of the defeat against Babylon was meant to teach Israel a lesson and encourage a righteous return to God and the covenant. So as applied to the South, the civil war and the resulting punishment of their defeat was the providence of God in which the South was chastened by the war 
And God was using this time to call them back to holiness. Do you see the, those parallels that came out of this? Um, I, I call it a myth. Uh, it's not my words. Um, in fact, I'll have to share with you my resources at the end of our class today. But it's called the myth of the lost cause because we know um, that nothing is that clear, right? There's no such clear lines between good guys and bad guys, especially uh, when you get down to the breadth of who uh, lived in the South and the breadth of who was involved in anti or in pro-slavery conversations. This myth, though, encouraged God's people, like the biblical narrative did, to reclaim their land. And it was a movement of redemption. They saw it in those theological terms, that God will save the people if they turn back to God and create out of those people a holy nation. That's very biblical. And that brings us to the Ku Klux Klan. Now, the Ku Klux Klan, um, the first Grand Wizard was Nathan Bedford Forrest. And uh, he created uh, essentially a social club that began immediately after the Civil War in 1866. It was a social club uh, that that was intended to play pranks on the residents of Pulaski, Tennessee, in order to uplift people's spirits after the war. Uh, that was the first iteration of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, the Greek word kuklos, Ku Klux, meant circle, and clan was a reference to the Scottish-Irish ancestry, Ku Klux Klan. They did wear white hoods, and that was, in this iteration of the KKK, that was a representative of the ghosts of the dead Confederate soldiers. And so this social club, this first iteration, uh, actually um, targeted African-American people, and the jokes turned deadly. Nevertheless, the movement spread to many other southern states within a couple of years. And the violence continued so much so that in 1871, Congress passed the Ku Klux Klan Act in order to protect voters. Uh, voter suppression was big in order to protect voters and the 14th Amendment. Uh, and that passage of that act resulted in the decline of Klan activity. But then came a second iteration of the Ku Klux Klan, and this is something that um, is important for our topic today about the church and racism. The second iteration occurred right at uh, the early 20th century, around 1915 to 1930, and it formed specifically as a religious order. William Simons began to reintroduce the Klan, but he tried to really avoid its history of violence, its, its legacy of violence, and, and probably more specifically, its, um, its focus on violence. 
And he framed the order as a fraternal Protestant organization that championed white supremacy as opposed to simply those who went out at night uh, to cause trouble. And that reframing worked. Membership increased, and the Klan had chapters in all 48 continental states. This iteration of the Klan claimed fundamentalism as its backbone. Now, fundamentalism is the term that describes the movement around this same time frame that there are five fundamental beliefs of Christianity, one of which is the infallibility of Scripture. We heard about that appeal to the very simplistic, literal meaning, word-for-word letter of the law that was used in the interpretation of the story of Noah and Ham. It's that kind of infallibility, simplicity of scripture that the fundamentalism really held on to as well as a few other things. And the purpose of this fundamentalist movement was to reaffirm those five key theological tenets. And fundamentalists were critical of Protestant theologians who used historical criticism or who tried to apply science in any kind of biblical interpretation. Now, the second revival of the KKK was the most integrated order within American societies. It was one of many organizations and movements in, these, in the 20s that rallied around a common ethnic identity and rallied against immigration. So it's one among many, although uh, distinct in some ways as well. So the story of the beginning of this iteration occurred on Thanksgiving Day 1915 when a former Methodist circuit rider assembled some white men on the top of Stone Mountain and held a ceremony there. Taking a ritual from the Scottish-Irish tradition, they burned a cross and they built an altar on which they placed the American flag and the Bible. That's the start of this second iteration of the Ku Klux Klan. The Klan required membership in a Protestant denomination and insisted that every member of the Klan went to a church, became a part of a church, and they encouraged people to recruit others to be in the Klan as well as in their church as well. Now, the Klan had its own means of communication, which meant that they shaped the kind of Protestantism that it adhered to and nurtured. This communication is uh, part of the resources that I'm using for all of this. We, we see it in the newsletters that they send out to all the menders, and, it, and it's, it's very intentional about shaping the theology as a religious understanding, as a religious order. Um, Henry Fry was a member of the Klan, and he wrote, um, after he denounced the Klan, he wrote about the process by which one becomes a member of the Klan. He says, He is then caused to kneel upon his right knee 
And a parody of the beautiful hymn, Just As I Am Without One Plea, is sung by those of the elect who can carry a tune. You can hear his snarkiness. You can tell he's not in the clan anymore. Um, so just keep that in mind. He says, sung by those of the elect who can carry a tune. After dedicating him further, the exalted Cyclops pours water on his shoulders, his head, throws a few drops in the air, making his dedication in body, in mind, in spirit, and in life. Henry Fry is really snarky about this, um, this initiation because he recognized it as a reference to baptism, and he found it to be sacrilegious, and that was really what made him withdraw from the Ku Klux Klan. I interesting connection to all that we talked about a couple of weeks ago and, and the way baptism was understood. Um, the KKK is using it now, right? So while the Klan embraced Protestantism, Protestantism did not embrace the Klan. Denominational governing bodies, the, 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 the mother church, if you will, uh, denounced the order, but the local churches proclaimed affiliation, especially in the South. The Klan members were Protestants in the literal meaning of the word, to be protesters. And again, with this theology of redemption that we talked about a moment ago, the Klan sought to cleanse the church, just as Martin Luther did. And um, the Klan really thought this redemption was uh, necessary. And the Klan saw Jesus as a Protestant, as one whose life was one of unending protest against all evil. And for all of these movements of Protestantism, uh, Jesus, Martin Luther, the Klan, they were all seen as reformers whose goal it was to restore paradise and to repair relationships between man and God and, uh, and man to man. They looked at Jesus and saw that in his Protestantism, <laughs> he emerged from the Jewish clan and created his own clan, Christianity. And it was a Christianity, uh, a clan based on moral character rather than kinship ties. And so for the clan, Jesus held the standard of character for all who belong to the clan. And they used Ephesians chapter four as a central motivator. Chapter 4, beginning at verse 14, says this, We must no longer be children tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery or their craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. I don't know about you, but I read that passage and I think, how on earth can you misunderstand that uh, to be all about love and unity? Well, uh, the clan heard that and twisted it ever so slightly. The clan actually added to this understanding of Ephesians, this, the whole talk about maturing and growing up into the likeness of, of Christ and being one, 
the Klan adds a focus on suffering. It's there in our scriptures. Jesus was the suffering Messiah, right? It's in there, but the Klan adds to this the idea that selflessness uh, and individual suffering that might come of that, they emphasize that to result uh, to the result of putting an importance on the cohesiveness of the clan over any one individual's wants or needs. Jesus was referred to as the master Christian who stood unflinchingly for the cause that he knew to be right. And that's a quote from some of their publications. And Klansmen were expected to do the same. It's so hard to say these words. <laughs> Let me just say that. It's so hard to hear this being understood in this way. But you can see all the building blocks that led to this understanding. The meaning of the uniform changed in this second iteration. It, it became deeper, and it certainly connected to its Protestant foundation. The, the belted white robe with the cross insignia had a white hat and an apron or a mask that covered one's face. The white, of course, represented racial and spiritual purity, and the insignia was a circle uh, that was, was red, and right in the middle of the red circle was a white cross. And in the middle of the white cross, there was a single red symbol that looked like a teardrop, but it was representative of a drop of blood. And it was symbolic of the blood of Christ shedding for all humanity. This was the robe of righteousness uh, that uh, would be worn by all of the saints in the land yet to come. Uh, according to their literature, uh, very much like the white robes in the book of Revelation. Revelation 3 verse 5 says, If you conquer, you will be clothed like them in white robes, and I will not blot your name out of the book of life. Or in Revelation 4 4, Around the throne are 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones are 24 elders dressed in white robes with golden crowns on their heads. In addition to the mask, it offered uh, uh, anonymity, but it also symbolized the taking away the last traces of an individual's uh, uh, of individuality, so that that individual was no longer one person, but rather part of the whole, part of the larger body, part of the order. The KKK flag um, had symbolism as well. Red was the blood of the sacrifice of those who formed the nation and potentially of clansmen who would defend it. And the white was the symbol of purity. The stars in the blue background was a reference to the God who ordered all of creation with, uh, with the understanding that Christianity formed America. God created creation and then through the Reformation work of Jesus created Christianity who would be about the work of reforming the nation and being redeemed as a nation 
uh, and that nation would be America. And then the final uh, symbol of the Klan is, of course, uh, the fiery cross. And the fire of that symbol, um, that act, was to represent Christ as the light of the world, but it also represented the purifying fire. So you can see all these themes that are well within our scripture that we embrace today are being manipulated and used for the purpose of the Klan uh, and the Klan's theology. As I mentioned, the Klan's understanding of America was theological. It, it was um, the, the white Protestants were the creators of, American, uh, of America, and it, the origins of America were explicitly religious. They, uh, the theology espoused the idea that the burden of the, of the nation and the maintenance of the nation fell solely upon the Klan's shoulders. In this new nation, faith was the boundary Belief in God was essential to citizenship, and the Klan held the proper understanding of faith. And this included an understanding that said Catholics were excluded because they had allegiance for an entity known as the Pope, another entity, not the nation. Jews were excluded because they refused to assimilate. African-Americans were excluded because they were thought to be the lesser race, the cursed race, and because they were lesser, they were noble, less noble and uh, rebellious, they could never aspire to the level of the Anglo-Saxon. And so all of these groups were specifically named as threats to the nation. However, not all whites were actually white. You could only be white in the Klan's understanding if they embraced white supremacy. The Negro in America uh, was considered to be a problem that only white Americans could solve, if it can be solved. In fact, one Klan leader wrote that there are three options for how to handle the Negro in America, and this is their language in their um, uh, communications, three ways to handle the Negro in America, slavery, extermination, and amalgamation. None of these solutions were possible because slavery was unlikely to be reinstated. Extermination was unlikely as, quote, the Negroes were breeding too fast. By the way, where have we heard that? The story of Moses and the Hebrews in Egypt, right? And amalgamation wouldn't work because, quote, whenever colored blood mingles with white blood, it's always caused a degeneracy of the white blood. So if white supremacy is to be maintained in America, then white Americans must insist that white people remain with white people and black people remain with black people. Separation is also a theme in our scriptures, is it not? It's Israel's quest to be God's preferred nation, right? It's the, the quest to be that nation set aside in purity and purpose for the whole world. The clan latched onto that. Now, David, David Curtis Stevenson, 
was uh, the Indiana Grand Dragon. He made a name for himself after recruiting 25,000 Klansmen in Indiana in only six months. Now, Stevenson was uh, an unsavory character, to say the least. He was an alcoholic. He was a womanizer. He had a history of abuse and abandonment in his relationships with the women he was involved with. Stevenson was charged with the murder of Madge Oberholzer. Stevenson was obsessed with her. He kidnapped her, raped her, abused her. And while she was kidnapped, she purposefully poisoned herself, hoping to make Stevenson take her to the hospital. He didn't, unless she agreed to marry him. Oberholzer did not acquiesce to his demands, and eventually one of Stevenson's friends returned her to her home. She was taken for medical treatment, but it was too late. She died due to the infections of her wounds and the impact of the poison. But before she died, her family had the wherewithal to record her accusation against Stevenson. Stevenson was convicted of the murder. Oberholzer's death at the hands of a prominent Klan officer finally revealed to the general public that the ideals of the order were disingenuous at best, and this event presented the Klan and its members as very dangerous and capable of doing horrible things. Can we all just say, finally, Finally, that understanding came to light, right? And it is noteworthy to say that Madge Oberholzer was a white woman. One of the aspects of Stevenson's leadership was his effective maneuvering to secure government positions for many Klan sympathizers. So this um, conviction of Stevenson really was what called an end to this iteration of the Klan. Uh, but many of the ideologies of the Klan became filtered into many other organizations and conservative movements. Um, you can imagine how easy that would have been because so much of what the Klan used comes from the source, the foundation for many other organizations and much of our understanding of, of faith in, in some broad ways, right? Um, the, the, I, I'm going to leave it at that, but uh, there, there's, a, there's a connection there, right? There's something um, that you can imagine how that continues on. It's important to understand, I think, that the members of the Klan were ordinary people. And they joined the order because it proved useful in daily lives, in their daily lives. And it confirmed uh, their need somehow, as well as their vision of nationalism, nationalism uh, and, and of religion and, and of race. Um, Many of the people uh, who were interviewed in one of the book's uh, resources uh, about the Klan, they didn't report 
They were Klan members who were interviewed, and they didn't report that they hated Catholics or Jews or African Americans, but focused rather on the value of their membership, of the social gatherings that happened around that, and, and of the work of the order. I mean, at, at this level, and what I presented here, those theological tenets, given at that face value, there's a lot that we could love about it. Oh, gosh. I can't believe that just came out of my mouth. <laughs> What I'm, what I'm thinking about is the idea that, that the, Christ is the model of our character. They've defined that character in different ways than we would, especially in terms of the relations to other people of other races. But Christ is the character. And we do see that, that God was shaping the Jewish nation to be a light to the world out of which Jesus comes uh, Christians were the settlers of this nation, and we did have a sense of call to make it be a nation that welcomed everyone. And, and even that was one of the tenets of the Klan, is to welcome all Protestant denominations. Now, there were other boundaries, but they didn't care whether or not you were Baptist or Methodist. They wanted all of Protestantism to be behind this. So, so the line between the clan in its theological understanding and use of scripture is very thin and found traction in many places in our history. I think it's really important to understand that. Kelly Baker is an author of one of my resources and, and she writes this, to recognize that humans commit atrocities against other humans without being willfully malevolent means that we cannot condemn members of the movement like the Klan as wholly evil, deranged, or abnormal. If we label the order as evil, we run the risk of ignoring the wide appeal of the order and the various reasons people chose to join. Such labeling leads to simplistic and useless renderings of complex movements. The, clan, the Klan's representation and language of the threats convinced white men and women to get involved. And fear was a huge motivating factor. I wanted to, I want to just back up my statement about the importance of understanding the appeal so that we might not be naive about the appeal's lasting legacy. There is yet a third iteration of the KKK. Um, how many times over the last four years have we heard um, this idea of, um, I support President Trump, I just don't appreciate everything, but he's done some good things. This, this kind of, um, we don't like this, but we like this. Um, and by the way, that's the same with any political leader, right? Um, we see that in this movement of the Klan, where, where people are somehow able to, to section off some of what the Klan did in order to get the benefit of other things that they liked, right? 
I mean, that's how movements like this spread, is this ability for us to, um, to, to turn a blind eye, to justify um, involvement, to not uh, fully understand um, or to um, simply ignore some of this. That's no way for us to move into the future, right? We have to be honest with the appeal and understanding of the appeal. As I think about um, some of the um, testimony of former KKK members who have uh, found a way out, one of the things that is consistent in their testimony is that the KKK gave them a place to belong when they felt like there was no place to belong. That's part of what I'm trying to say. And I think that's an important message for us in these days as we move into a Biden presidency. Over half, no, less than half of the people who voted voted for Trump. That's a lot of people to disenfranchise. And we have to recognize a way to build bridges, to not call people evil, people evil. We can certainly claim acts as evil, but we have to provide for people a way out and a place to belong. Fear is a huge motivating factor, and the Klan really used it. Um, and, you know, our scripture says that there are, uh, there's over 110 occasions where uh, we are heard, we hear the words, uh, do not be afraid, or do not fear, or fear not, right? Um, it, there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. I have talked an awful lot. Uh, first of all, I also uh, want to say that um, I know that some of the words that come out of my mouth are not the right way to say certain things. Um, that's I'm going to be the living, breathing example of uh, being in difficult conversations and making a mess of them, but still going to be in them to try and be better. Um, so... Uh, I thank you for your grace and understanding my heart when the words don't come out right. 